Hello and welcome to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powers, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. Um, I'm joined today by my colleagues Emily Riera and Essie Maravara. It's Friday afternoon. We're just about to have a long weekend and I'm forcing these guys to do the podcast anyway because yes. I'm such an awful employer. <laughs> Regular listeners will also note that Courtney's not here. Courtney West, our colleague, has moved on. She's gone to the top end of town to explore <laughs> her career where she will be relentlessly tortured for the rest of her career by some faceless international capitalist. And we wish her, we wish her well in her future endeavours and we'll miss her from the podcast quite a bit. So now today we're going to talk about redundancy. Now, around about a year ago, we published a a sort of a, a free online guide, which is a, um, a guide to termination of employment, uh, an ethical and lawful approach. We published that on our webpage and we did a podcast concerning the first half of that, which was about dismissals for reasons relating to capacity and conduct. Now, we said at the time that part B the following week was going to be about redundancy and that was a year ago. We still haven't done it. So <laughs> we're finally finally caught up to that. We're going to talk about the second half of that and I think we might even republish that booklet online for anyone that's interested. So today, really, we're going to talk about the other side. We talked about dismissals when it related to the capacity or conduct of an employee. Now we're talking about uh, a redundancy, which is really when an employer makes a decision that they no longer wish for that role or that job to be done by anyone. And it's very important to draw that distinction because the Australian law does draw that distinction between a dismissal about the person's characteristics, whether that be something they've done or being unable to, to, to perform, and circumstances where the job itself is the reason for the dismissal. We'll talk about that. But then we're also going to do the good, the bad, the ugly. And we watched a movie, The Devil's Advocate. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Where, where yeah. was it from? 19... 1997, I think. 1997. Yeah. Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. And we'll talk about that. We'll have some fun with that. So first of all, redundancy. As I said, redundancy is defined in a couple of places in the, in the Act, but it's really a common law concept. But it's defined in Section 119 of the Fair Work Act as being a situation where employment ends at the employer's initiative because the employer no longer requires the job by the employee to be done by anyone. Um, except, except where this is due to the ordinary and customary turnover of labour or because of the insolvency or bankruptcy of the employer. So it's defined in 119 for a very specific purpose and that's to provide a severance payment for redundancy, for redundancy situations. Now traditionally over the history of Australian workplace law, redundancies had Payments have had various origins, sometimes in enterprise agreements, sometimes in awards, sometimes in an employer's redundancy policy, sometimes as, as a result of a contract of employment. Really, the 2009 uh, changes uh, have put this into you know, what we now know as being the national employment standards. So all national system employees are covered. Now, redundancies can occur in, in, in quite a different number of situations. As I, as I mentioned, bankruptcy or insolvency business downscaling due to a downturn, business relocation, business restructures, technological change. That's really important to understand as well. Redundancy is like a permanent cessation of employment for, for, for the reason that the, the employer no longer wants the job to be done by anyone. Now, during this really interesting COVID time, we've seen a lot of 
crazy stuff going on. We've also seen a lot of stand downs, stand downs under Section 524, stand downs under the JobKeeper provisions. It's really important to understand the redundancy is, is, is a permanent end of employment. It's really important to note again, redundancies don't arise because of a poor performance issue. And it can be very tempting sometimes for employers to kind of mask performance issues as redundancy. Now, there's some really high risks in doing that. This is one of the things we're going to discuss a little bit later. But fundamentally, I just wanted to talk about the redundancy pay entitlements that's under, under Section 119, also Section 117. So in any employment termination situation other than serious misconduct or other than a casual notice, a period of notice is prescribed by the Act. So the period of notice will be payable in a redundancy situation and and that's that's set out in, in the Fair Work Act. So really for less than a year, it's one week. For more than one year, less than three years, it's two weeks. More than three years, less than five years, it's three weeks. More than five years, it's four weeks. And there's also a quirk in the Act that Anyone over the age of 45 that's done more than two years service gets an additional week as well. Now, the severance payment in redundancy situations, now there's some exceptions to this, which you, you know you guys are gonna talk about in a minute, but the, there's a sliding scale really where less than one year, there's no severance payment. It's then four weeks for more than two years and it graduates all the way up to, um, to as much as 16 weeks in some cases. So it can be quite significant for a long-term employee, but really one of the things I suppose we need to talk about, and the guys are gonna talk about this, is what are the situations where either redundancy payments can be varied under section 120 of the Fair Work Act, and also what are the exclusions? Uh, who are the people that this that the severance pay provision doesn't apply to? So Essie, I might get you to start with section 120. In what situations can can employers avoid the severance payment? Right, so section 120 allows for employers to apply for a variation to the amount of redundancy that is payable to an employee. Um, and the key thing to understand with section 120 is that the employer has to actually make an application with the Fair Work Commission for a variation to the payable amount. And the yeah. Fair Work Commission will then make a decision based on the evidence whether it's actually appropriate to do so. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in there and just really nail that bit home. As Essie said, a formal application has to be made to the Fair Work Commission, and then the Fair Work Commission need to make a determination before that's before that's applicable. Yeah, so carry on. No, that's right. So, um, and there are two possible grounds for applying for the variation. The first is that the employer has obtained other acceptable employment for that employee. So that would be in the instance of like an acquisition of business or a transfer of business scenario. And then the other ground is uh, that the employer cannot pay the amount. Um, and this is often misinterpreted to mean that the employer would face significant difficulty with paying the amount, but the threshold is actually really quite high. And so you have to, to set out your financial situation to the Fair Work Commission and convince the commissioner that they really can't pay the amount without, you know, going insolvent or bankrupt or whatever the case might be. Um, there was one matter of note before the Fair Work Commission in 2020, and this was following the first couple of months of the COVID pandemic. Um, now, the employer was Coal River Farm, and they had applied to reduce the redundancy entitlements of two employees uh, to nil. And the, the original redundancy amounts were, I think, together up to $24,000. So it was a significant amount, um, but they, they, they were arguing that because of the downturn in business, they would like that variation to not pay any redundancy. Coal River submitted that one of their restaurants closed 
due to the government response to COVID um, and that travel restrictions had impacted their other business. Now, the commissioner noted that Coal River had relied on an incomplete, unverified profit and loss statement and an undated screenshot of an unnamed bank account without any history of recent transactions. And the commissioner said that she accepted that the company was facing significant challenges and that its future financial prospects are uncertain, um, particularly as COVID continued to impact their business. But it was still insufficient to demonstrate that it was not merely beneficial to Coal Farm to reduce the amount to be paid. And ultimately, the Fair Work Commission denied um, any variation to the redundancy amounts. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, it really has to be cannot pay. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that's the key. Um, and, yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Now, I think with the obtaining acceptable other employment, you captured that correctly, Essie, in the sense that that's mostly going to arise in a sort of acquisition or transfer of business scenario where there's a sale of business, etc. I think the threshold, again, is quite high in terms of obtaining um, it needs to be actually obtained in some way by the employer. So then there's going to need to be evidence that that happened. It's not just, you know, oh, why don't you go and apply a job so-and-so? I know I've got a friend there. They might be able to, you know, generally speaking, some type of contractual evidence that that's been actually obtained is an important threshold. The other point is the whether or not the alternative employment is acceptable is is a really interesting point and there's numerous cases around that that's on a case-by-case basis and it's really a factual determination that the commission is going to make often for instance employment that's quite far away um, on much less remuneration um, are not going to be acceptable and really you're talking about quite a higher standard but having said that um, redundancy is about protecting employees from the loss of income from a sudden loss of job and where there is an, an obtaining acceptable other employment, um, the, the, the commission will will take a, a pretty strong view on that. A recent case from um, December 2021, where the Fair Commission consider um, two offers that were made to an employee and that the employee has rejected. So the first one, um, the first option would um, include an extra travel travel time of uh, 40 minutes. Yeah. And uh, the commission considered that the additional travel time would have been inconvenient and onerous. Yeah. So it was not reasonable with deployment. And the other options that were offered to the employee was with the same duties, uh, same remuneration, and an identical location, but yeah. the position was not permanent. Yeah. And um, it was undetermined whether the position would become a permanent position. Yeah. The employee um, refused uh, that offer. And in that case, the um, Fair Commission decided that it was actually a reasonable uh, deployment and the employee should have accepted the offer. So they decided to uh, exercise their discretion in reducing the redundancy payment from 12 weeks to four weeks in that case. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, under the power of, of Section 120. Yeah. So that's great from that point of view. Exclusions, we probably, I don't know, we probably should have done this first, but who's excluded 
from the severance pay requirement, Emily? So under Section 121, there, is, there are three cases where an employee can be excluded from redundancy pay. So the first one is when the employee's continuation of service with the employer is less than 12 months. Yeah. The second one is for casual employee. So yeah. they are excluding for, from redundancy pay. And yeah. the third one is when the employer is a small business employer. Yeah. So that is an employer who has less than 15 employees. Yeah, okay. So the same test is, is often used in the unfair dismissal scenario, so less than 15. And I, I believe that's at the time of the redundancy, including the person that is going to be made redundant. Yes, yeah, so, to, to yeah. count the number of employees so that you must include all employees employed at the time, yeah. casual employees who at the time were employed on a regular and systematic basis, yeah. and all the employees who are being dismissed or terminated are yeah, included. Okay. Yeah, and the casual as well. And, and look, you know, this provision predates the changes to casual employment we've spoken about that's in the Act and also in the Workpack and Rosado case, but obviously that that now becomes the determination of whether someone or not is casual. And jumping ahead a bit, I don't know if you guys saw this, there's been a case recently, I don't know if you remember on our podcast, we were talking about the, the casual definition hmm. and we were talking about the fact, and I think it was Andrew Stewart that had said that this might, oh, maybe it was the, Raf, no, it wasn't Andrew Stewart, it was Rafu had said that the new definition of casual employment may impact jurisdiction over unfair dismissals. And I remember saying on the podcast, oh, that's nonsense, That'll, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and it has, there was a case a, a week or so ago where a commissioner has, has said, basically held that someone wasn't regularly systematically in, engaged noting the terms of the contract, applying the test in Rosado and all of those things. So it, it has had an impact oh. and it may have an impact in terms of redundancy too, in terms of who is actually a casual and not, um, is now going to be applied by that test that was introduced in um, March 2021 by the coalition government. it's kind yeah. of Which, reasonable to expect that there's a bit of a teething period as they figure this out. Yeah, yeah. But I, the way that I read it, I, I don't think... I, I didn't think that the, the rule in Rosado applied to the regular and systematic casual for the purposes of unfair dismissal. Um, you know, whether you're regular and systematic casual in the meaning of the Fair Work Act is actually prescribed. It, it's a prescription about the mode of your employment. It's not, um, it's not related to contract. So I think it'll be an interesting one to watch. I, I don't know if there's going to be an appeal on that one or if there's going to be further determinations, but... Um, I, I certainly didn't see that as being the intention of the legislation, but I think in terms of redundancy, it's a, it's a really it's a really critical one. Definitely, um, because you've got situations where people are now engaged or able to be engaged on a casual basis, on, 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 with a little bit more regularity now that that definition has come in, which actually sort of then excludes the redundancy provision. So I think there will be some some interesting cases, risk wise. And I think this is really important. There are some critical risks in redundancy. And I said at the beginning of the podcast that employers need to be really careful they don't use this as a sort of a smokescreen for what's effectively a performance 
um, dismissal. I think sometimes people think it's going to be an easier conversation if you talk about redundancy rather than capacity and conduct and it's just kind of a nicer way of doing things. Um, there's some real risks um, because in circumstances where an employee is is made redundant, they don't believe that they've been made redundant, um, there is an avenue for them to take an unfair dismissal application. And in effect, they're not covered by unfair dismissal if they have been made redundant and that redundancy is genuine. Um, so there is a jurisdictional objection available to employers in this situation, but the bar to prove that jurisdictional objection is quite high. So in, in many ways, it's, it's important to note that if you are making somebody redundant, it's important to satisfy that definition of genuine redundancy under the Fair Work Act. And if you don't, then there's a real risk of an unfair dismissal application, first of all, being made. And secondly, if, if you haven't done things correctly, that there's, if you can't resist it on jurisdiction, there's often a, a very good chance that the dismissal will ultimately be determined, determined to be unfair. The, the definition of whether or not something is a genuine redundancy is, is found in Section 389 of the Fair Work Act. Now, there's really three parts to this and we're going to discuss it. Firstly, the very similar test to what I was talking about in terms of Section 119 is a genuine redundancy if it's a, if it's a termination because the employer no longer wishes that job to be done by anybody. Secondly, if there's any consultation requirements that arise under an industrial instrument, such as the modern award or an enterprise agreement, those consultation requirements must be followed for it to be considered a genuine redundancy. And finally, um, from a redeployment perspective, it's not a genuine redundancy if it was reasonable to redeploy the person within the organisation or, or within the organisation group. So um, we'll have a bit of a discussion about those things. I'm just going to go back a step to the 15 employee, the small business employer. It's very important for people that have got some complex structures out there. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but that's going to be 15 across the whole corporate group, including related bodies, corporate, associate entities, etc. So you can't divvy up a large corporation into mini corporations to try and get under the cap. Either. You know, that, that's definitely not available. So that's 15 across the whole group. Um, I'm going to talk about consultation requirements when we talk about the process um, for redundancy and how to go about it a little bit later. That's really integrated into what we'll talk about in terms of the how-to. So I really want to talk about both what does it mean when we say the job is genuinely no longer required to be done by anybody, number one, and then secondly, look at the reasonable redeployment options. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I was just having a look at 389 subsection 1A. So that's the part uh, relating to um, the employer no longer requiring a person's job to be performed by anyone. And I guess there have been a couple of important decisions on the meaning of the word job. Um, and a most commonly referenced case is from 1995, Jones in the Department of Energy, where Judge Ryan uh, referred to, it, to, to a job as a collection of functions, duties and responsibilities entrusted to a particular employee. Yeah. Um, and the consequence of that is that an employee may still be genuinely made redundant when there are aspects of their duties still being performed by other employees. So what the court or commission looks at is whether the job itself has survived the restructure. 
and not whether the duties have survived. And I think this is something that we see employees often reference. They'll say, oh, but such and such is now doing the task that I was doing. So they clearly did need me. And this is not a genuine redundancy. But unfortunately, that's not in line with the approach taken by the courts. It's the, the job is about the collection of the duties done together by that one particular person. So and then the other key part of the section uh, are the words that the job was no longer required to be performed by anyone. Um, and the courts have interpreted that to mean anyone in the company or the enterprise. So it's actually open to employers to outsource tasks or jobs if that's part of the operational changes that yeah. they're implementing. Yeah, absolutely. Outsourcing something like the classic example might be, for instance, your bookkeeper or your in, internal accountant outsourcing to a sort of a virtual CFO or a bookkeeping service and all of those things. Absolutely genuine. I think just want to make a comment about that, the distinction between a job and the duties and tasks, because you oh, see yeah. this coming up quite a lot. And the way I always think of it is like, it's like a bundle. And I don't know if this is from a case or if I made this up, you know, <laughs> I think where you have like a bundle, like a bundle of sticks, you know, tied up with string, I think it's best imagined as really the sticks are the duties, but the string is the job. And you kind of hit on that with Jones, the, the Jones case in the sense that mm. it's really, it's the collection of duties that, that that is the job, not the duties themselves. And I think yeah. that's really important when you've got a restructuring situation where you sort of, uh, where for instance, let's say you've got a, a headcount reduction of a senior executive and you're going from four to three, very, very often, all of the tasks of that senior executive that's leaving will still be will still be done. But if they're split between the other three, then it's a genuine redundancy. It's an operational restructure that's made for um, for, for specific operational reasons. And that so, kind yeah. of relates to the kind of last part about it, about the operational changes. I think this is something that people take issue with as well, is saying, well, all of these other people are doing my duties. And so the commissioner of the court will look at why the operational change was introduced. So if it yeah. was for the performance of the business, the state of the market, um, if they've taken steps to try and just improve, improve efficiency um, because they think that the labor would be used more productively if you gave those duties or set them up in a certain way. So, you know, and some of the common kind of reasons for operational changes is that there's a machine that can now do the job or there's been a downturn in trade or a client says that they yeah. no longer need this big project to be, you know, to be, to go yeah. forward with. So suddenly, you know, you have to, you don't need that many employees and, and so on, but yeah. 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 They, well, they say that about us, the bots are coming for our jobs. Definitely. Obviously. Yeah. Artif artificial <laughs> intelligence is coming for the lawyer that we're not going to have lawyer jobs in, in 10 years, apparently. Well, no, um, well, that's why it's fine for us to just give out this information. That's <laughs> If, if the bots want to come from my job, they can have it. I'm happy that ship that. has sailed. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, and reasonable redeployment, Emily. So, so you know, how would you, what, what would you comment on it in relation to what constitutes a reasonable redeployment opportunity? Yeah, so reasonable redeployment of an employee is considered reasonable. It will depend on the circumstances that exist at the time of the dismissal. Um, and... A number of matters may be relevant and will be considered. So, for example, whether there exists a job or other work to which the employee can be redeployed. So, in a way, like you will need to have evidence and demonstrate, uh, if necessary, to the fair commission um, 
what were the steps taken by the employer to identify other work that could be performed by the employee. Yeah. Um, you also need to consider the suitability of the job. So the qualification required to perform the job, but also the employee's skills, qualification, and experience. So whether like the employee has the necessary skills to perform the job or does he need a training that is reasonable to perform the job. Yeah. And you also have to consider the location of the job and, and the remuneration and also consider all the entertainment. So it's like remuneration, including paid and other entertainments. Um, roles with a lawyer income and less responsibility must also be considered. Yeah. So we, you cannot presume as an employer that the employee will refuse a position just because the position um, as a lawyer paid and with less responsibility, you still have yeah. to make the offer. The other really important part of Section 389 is the consultation angle. Now, this depends on, first of all, whether there's a award or enterprise agreement. And if there is, it depends on what the consultation requirement is. Now, now obviously, as we move on a little bit, we're sort of a good few years after 2009. So... Most of the consultation clauses are, are becoming a little bit more consolidated than they used to be. But certainly, I think I've always believed that consultation is a really, really useful tool, irrespective of whether your employee is actually covered by a modern award or not. Now, at the very high senior executive levels, you sort of understand that, you know, redundancies happen sort of straight away immediately and um, there's no unfair dismissal coverage in any case. But certainly I, my, my approach to this issue has always been that consultation is, is best practice anyway. And the redundancies I've been involved in have always gone so much better if the consultation process is followed. Now, in the pamphlet, which there'll be a link in the, uh, in the podcast for the, for the PDF, and we'll have it on social media. So really have a look at that. And it sets out the process in a lot of detail. I'm not going to go through it. But fundamentally, most consultation requirements is that as soon as a, a sort of a definite decision is made that may have a significant impact on an employee, a consultation needs to be entered into as soon as, you know, as soon as reasonably practicable after the decision's been made. And that has to happen before the actual action is taken. So it's not enough to sort of say, oh, we had a long discussion and then, you know, I gave them the letter terminating their employment. Really, there needs to be some space in between the consultation and the actual termination. Now, it doesn't mean consultation doesn't mean that you have to change your mind. Often redundancy is an inevitable outcome in some instances. Nevertheless, the, the consultation is about giving the employee the opportunity to say how it might affect them, giving them an opportunity to say what measures might be implemented to assist them in the process and, and those types of things. And you'd be surprised how often employees come up with things that really are quite easy to accommodate prior to the, the to the actual redundancy being affected. So there's a set process. Give us a call if you want to follow that through or if you want to have a look at the pamphlet and you've got any questions, but I don't want to labour the process um, any more than that. But fundamentally, if you don't want anyone to do that job anymore, follow the consultation process and it's not reasonable to redeploy, then 
the redundancy will be genuine and, and most of the risks are covered off. A dismissal or a redundancy, it's a really tough thing to go through for the employee, absolutely. It's a tough thing for employers to go through as well. It's not a nice experience for anyone, but I think the golden rule is it doesn't have to be done in a way that's overly adversarial or combative. You know, my view, often having a respectful conversation, which allows the employees to sort of preserve their dignity and to raise things that may be necessary to help them and assist them, having that kind of conversation is a really effective way to, to manage workforce and is a much more ethical and, and kinder way to, to affect the, to bring about the end of employment. But as well as that, it actually will quite often reduce the actual legal risks of that employment being challenged. The number of times we see employment being challenged um, in our practice, a lot of the time it's because the employee is really hurt or annoyed or pissed off, if you excuse my language, about what's happened to them. And, and, and that's why the application has been brought. And so it, it's really, you know, it's, it's worth getting some help um, when it comes to the termination of employment because it's a really difficult thing. But I think basically have a read of the guide, give us any questions. But that pretty much sums up our, our termination of employment section. Yep. Pretty much on time. Time for the good, bad and ugly. Who wants to go first? Essie, what's your good? Now, it will seem like I'm cheating, but I actually do have two separate things. But I figured my good and bad kind of work together because they're on the same topic. So if I can is that DoorDash and the Trade Workers Union have signed a statement of principles to ensure safety and fairness to workers in the gig economy or the the on-demand economy. Now, it's not actually legally binding, but they're going to lobby the government to implement some industry-wide standards that will be based on this statement of principles. So you can look them up. There's six principles. They sound all good. They're a bit vague, again, in that I think they're a bit... uh, Again, it's not legally binding. It's just sort of... Um, sending the intentions, and um, I think that's that's great to see. I yeah. think there's some changes needed. And my bad is a bit of an update from Menulog on their job trial. So oh, yeah. they had 22 part-time employees. Um, now, usually their gig economy, sort of the, the writers, they're considered consultants, uh, if anybody needs a bit of a refresh. And uh, Menulog is trialing a sort of employment program with 20, 22 of those employees. 22 workers as employees and in fair work in january the fair work commission decided that the appropriate award is the road transport distribution award and essentially this is part of the discussion about whether a new award should be introduced that's specific for on-demand economy for delivery drivers and and the like and menulog has now said that they've been trialing this their employment program using the road transport distribution award and they're saying that's not sustainable so yeah. the problem is that the award requires four hour minimum uh, shifts they ban splitting shifts and they set ordinary hours before 5 30 a.m and 6 30 p.m which just doesn't align with what they do nobody's looking to yeah. get food delivered at 5 30 a.m and most of the work is done after 6 30 so the peak hours actually mean that Menulog is paying penalty rates for its employees yeah. for the work that they're doing and that it just can't that it's it's not the sustainable way to go forward with with the on-demand economy so clearly we just it needs its own award is what it sounds like yeah and it's really difficult because the, the, the fair work commission can't make an award if they determine that an existing award covers yeah. those employees and that's the difficulty they face 
They can't just decide, oh, yeah, let's do a new one. But, so yeah, absolutely, like, you look at the roads and transport distribution, and, you know, we do a lot of work on that award, and typically it's kind of, it's the truck driver, delivery driver, courier, you didn't type type yeah. category, which is like an entirely different proposition to what this on-demand thing is. So, yeah, that might end up being a bit of a regressive move for that plan to roll out, in, you know, an employee model. But, you know, you don't yeah. blame the commission because I think that they're following quite a strict process no, in the sense yeah. that they, if the award does apply, it applies. No, exactly. And I think all that it really illustrates is that this is unique and new and everybody yeah. who's like, I don't know, not everybody, but if there's been conversation about the fact that there are awards that already cover this and it's not necessary, I think yeah. clearly this won't work. Yeah. And it's showing really what the, the flaws in the modern award system that are quite yeah. archaic in some ways. And despite being called modern awards, <laughs> because we know, you know, the, the, the current system is modern, but, but the concept of the awards is, is anything but modern. Um, and you know, I'm not looking to abandon. You know, you know before anyone um, gets up me, I'm I'm not looking to <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that the such a the, disruptor. The, you know, the, the minimum, yeah, the minimum conditions provided by awards are, are wrong. It, it's it's not accommodating innovation in the way that perhaps it could. But yeah, no, that's interesting. So there, you goods and bads all mixed up. I'm, yes, but they're on the same topic. So I thought I'd. I'm on a similar similar page because my good oh. my good is a good bad, and my bad is a kind of a bad good, and I'm not even sure which way around. <laughs> Emily, what's your what's your good first? What's what do you have for good? Yeah, so I'm thinking I'll be really short with my good, but it's a good good news, so let's celebrate it. Like the national unemployment rate has fallen to its lowest level since mid 1974. Wow. In on the other hand, it also means that there is a shortage of employees yeah. everywhere in all yeah. industries. Yeah. The Department of Home Affairs has told that they're going to cut visa processing time for skilled workers. Oh. So they're really trying to get some skilled workers from overseas into yeah. Australia. And I've also noted that both in New South Wales and Victoria, there is a shortage in medical staff. And in both, both states, they're offering bonuses for employees working in hospital or emergency services. Oh, I was close to putting that as my ugly <laughs> the bonus situation. I just feel like nobody's happy with it. It's it's nice. It's a good gesture. But I don't think um, the people who actually work in the industry have really seemed to be taking to it. The bonuses? That's, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think here. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting from the migration perspective because we actually have, like, that's one of the things that COVID did and nobody really expected is that the, that big period of time where we didn't have international travel and and funnily enough, because of the way, you know, COVID was such a delayed reaction to us in Australia because we managed to avoid it for such a long period of time, what that ended up being is international travel in Australia was even longer than it was anywhere else. Oh, yeah. and, um, I think hospitality you know, is really struggling to, to find anybody just because of the slowdown of international travel. But also I know the accountancy industry is is, is very short of people a lot of that is because of the a lot of the international students that typically would have graduated 
and then stayed for work yeah. has put some pressure on on that for employment lawyers as i said at the beginning of the pod we've lost one of our colleagues recently because because there is a shortage and people yeah. are going pretty hard and so if there are any recruiters listening if you could just leave us alone for a couple of months that'd be really good. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so my good is is like part good part bad the fair work commission are, are rolling out sort of some proposals around doing a lot of hearings online via microsoft teams based on on the, the period in COVID where we did a lot of online hearings that's obviously a success it's reducing costs great for the convenience of of both practitioners and witnesses as well as parties being able to attend through the microsoft teams platform and and certainly it's been great where i think there's a bit of a bad there is personally i would not like to see a lot of witness evidence done online where there's a question of credibility and in unfair dismissals so often in my experience it comes down to is the employer the more credible witness or is the employee the more credible witness and so many of them boil down to that very issue and i would hate to see a completely online model where that was happening i mean you know as you know we we did a hearing during the lockdown involving witness evidence and, and i really feel that our witness is quite prejudiced by being online. I've had two experiences, one for the Fair Work Commission and one before the mm. Industrial Relations Commission, where I think that was the case. And so but when it comes to stuff like out-of-time hearings, interlocutory hearings, directions hearings, all of those things, it's a, it's a great way to go. So I think it's a good, but it's a good with a sort of a cautionary element. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I agree. I think it does make a difference, especially, like, it just depends on the matters as well. In some cases, maybe, maybe not. But um, yeah, yeah. Couple of weeks ago. 100%. And where, where you've got sort of some issue that the, where the matter, where the facts aren't contested and the procedural fairness aspects are all in the documents and all of those things, yeah, bang it out online. Uh, but where, where, where a member of the commission is making a decision about whether, whether he or she thinks the employee is telling the truth or whether the employer is telling the truth and, and the characterization of conduct, you know, when the person um, sweared or, or, or raised their voice. Was it really as bad as the employer thought? What was it actually like? You know, yeah. those types of things where there's a characterization issue or a credibility issue, there's some real benefits to actually being in the same room. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Keep an eye on it. Yeah. You've done your bad already, have, haven't yeah, you? So, Emily, are you, are you up to bad? What was your bad? Yes, I've got a bad because it's really bad to smoke cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> The Fair Commission reminded us a little bit of that with an employee uh, who's been employed with the same company for 25 years. Has wow. um, failed this drug test, testing, testing positive to THC. Uh. At 30 times the required level. Yes. Oh, wow. 30 times. Yes, yeah, so that's pretty high. So he explains that he's never smoked cannabis before and <laughs> during his leave for two weeks he smoked a lot of cannabis including the day before returning to work and having to go to the drug test. Um, he had no idea that he would test positive on the next day. He yeah. thought that it would go away like uh, drinking right. too much yeah. like the night before. 
Yeah. And so he contested his dismissal, uh, saying that he's been wrongly dismissed for out of hours conduct. Uh, well, yeah. it didn't go well before the Federal Commission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The employer also had um, zero tolerance uh, drug and alcohol policy. Yeah. So obviously he had to comply with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, look, I'm quite unfortunate for the employee because it sounds like, you know, there was a genuine belief there, but it's 30 times the limit. But it does last a lot longer. Um, it lasts for months. Yeah. You need to, to make sure that you don't go into a drug test within yeah. the next couple of months. You raised the zero tolerance, um, you know, so from a practical standpoint, having a policy is really important if you are going to dismiss for that type of reason, but not just having the policy, meaning it's like filed somewhere in a filing cabinet or on SharePoint or whatever. It, it needs to be an actual policy that's enforced. And that is applied to everyone in the same way too. Yeah, 100%. So I didn't think we were going to go anti-cannabis on the podcast, but... We're saying to people, be careful. It lasts for a long time. That's right. You need to wait a couple of months before you go to your drug test. My bad which is going to segue into a good. Ooh. There was a federal circuit and family, I still can't say it, federal circuit and family I'm court of the case, federal circuit court case uh, in the small claims division hmm. where an order was made under Section 545 for directors to pay compensation for underpayments. So... Wow. Uh, it's quite an interesting one in the sense that, and I'll tell you why it's bad, but also good. Traditionally, the small claims division where, you, you know, there's a couple of different features of the small claims division, but it's claims under $20,000 need to seek leave to be represented. Civil penalties are not awarded under the small claims division. And for similar reasons, traditionally, the Section 550 type claims where a director or an accessory is also deemed to have contravened the Act has traditionally not been available in the small claims area. So that's changed and directors can now be held liable for compensation. And that's really in circumstances where directors have folded the company to try and avoid paying underpayments. Now, I think in, in, in that way, it's a good thing. I, I worry about... The, the, the jurisdiction of that small claims division being expanded and particularly in circumstances where you often don't have legal representation into areas such as accessorial liability, which are really hard areas of law. So I'm kind of worried on one level. I think it's a bad from the legal standpoint. I think from a social standpoint, it's great. What I would like to see is an expansion of the, the small claims process for underpayments. So I think having to go to the federal court system to recover money, especially when the federal uh, when the federal circuit and family court of Australia has got such a large caseload that you could be waiting a year and a half, for instance, in the Sydney registry to get a case on, I think it's really onerous to try and recover money. So I I, I, I encourage, in general terms, the the ease, but I don't know that that's the right way to go about it. Certainly, I'd like to see an expansion of the commission's jurisdiction to actually arbitrate small claims. 
that happens yeah. in South Australia with the South Australian Employment Tribunal. I, I think that's a good way for, for them to do it. I think if you could actually have underpayments claims subject to a commission process where you have conciliation, arbitration, I think that would be a much more effective way to do it. Waffling on a little bit, but I think it's um, it's an it's very interesting from a legal precedent point of view that the small claims division can now make those orders. No, I, I think, thought I think I read that one, and I thought what was interesting was that the respondent was arguing that they shouldn't pay because I think there was something under the wording of five four five that said essentially an amount payable by the employer, and he was saying that he's a former director and therefore he's not the yeah. he was ever the employer. Um, yeah. And I just thought, and I remember reading it, and I thought it's ridiculous to think that he would be able to get away with that kind of argument for a genuine underpayment. And uh, basically, the court also held that um, it, the amount was payable by the employer. It was, you know, it was a debt owed by the employer, but it's not necessarily yeah. that only the employer can be held liable for that. Was, yeah, yeah. Right and it's always been interesting, even not in the small claims division, but in the in the in the in the main part of the court, that the issues about section five four five because five four five is really broad scope in terms of what can be ordered by a court, anything that anything the court considers appropriate. Yeah, uh, but I, I think the there's something, and I'm scratching at my memory now. There's something <laughs> in the explanatory memorandum which suggests that accessories should not be held liable for the yep. compensation amounts only for penalties. So I think the intention of the legislature was to to actually have it as the employer must pay, not the directors. But there have been some orders in the main part of the court yeah. where directors have been, uh, you know, access, accessories have been required to pay the compensation amount. So there is precedent for it, but I think the original intention was not. But it's yeah. a very murky, very murky area. And certainly I think it's quite regressive to have a situation where you can just fold up a company and not pay. Yeah. I think everyone would agree yeah. that that loophole shouldn't exist, sort of corporate phoenixing and the corporate veil, et cetera, when it comes to people's entitlements. Did you have an ugly? Me, yes. Um, I did. Um, it's not necessarily ugly. I feel like our ugly, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit dramatic. I, I, I struggled. I struggled with ugly. There, there seems to be less ugliness around. It's a moment. bad. This is a bad, I think, overall. So, um, but the Fair Work Commission held that the redundancy of a financial analyst was genuine, despite also finding that the employer had acted harshly and unfa- unfairly in um, not affording the employee an opportunity to be redeployed to other positions. And so the reason why I kind of picked this as my ugly um, is, A, because it's incredibly relevant to what we're talking about today, and I thought that was just very lucky, but also because Commissioner Hunt um, made the point that the employer was actually uh, unjustified in concluding that the employee, well, that they had been unjustified in having concluded so early in the consultation process that the employee wasn't suited to the two roles that would have been available for redeployment. But then uh, she went on to actually say that the employee's conduct was so aggressive and hostile that it indicated that she didn't have the interpersonal skills to actually um, be redeployed into those two roles, which required interpersonal skills of a certain level. Um, So I just thought, uh, I think Commissioner Hunt generally has some very sensible decisions. And so therefore, if she's saying that, if she's, said that someone's conduct was aggressive and hostile, I would imagine it was aggressive and hostile. Yeah. So, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and again, that's the what, what we talked about earlier. That's that's the, the type of determination that you've got to trust the commissioners to make. Yeah. Talking about in-person versus video, that's that's their role, isn't it, to make those no. type of factual, factual decisions. Um, Definitely. Did you have an ugly? 
Emily? I've got an ugly. I don't know who he <laughs> considers that he's ugly, but it's about Elon Musk who sends that <laughs> all of Tesla has to to his Tesla employees, asking yeah. them, like giving them an ultimatum to come back to the office and stop phoning in it or to simply quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like running and on the front at the moment with people being asked to return to work to the office. We're not in lockdown anymore. And that we've seen um, a lot of resistance from employee from uh, yeah, employees uh, yeah. to go back to their office and some exasperation from employer. So <laughs> I just found it interesting that you went was really clear about it uh, yeah. and just saying that, well, if you don't want to go back, you can just go work somewhere else. Yeah, didn't he say, didn't he say something like you can go and pretend to work for someone else? Wasn't that, was that, <laughs> wow, yeah. was that somebody else? No, that's, that's, that's really what ugly. he said. I think that's what he said during a radio interview or when he oh, was okay, asked right. to explain <laughs> what is okay, email and that, uh, yeah, they could, uh, yeah, pretend working somewhere else if they didn't want to work from, from the office. Oh, he's clearly yeah. frustrated, but my God, that's an ugly message to have to give your employees. I mean, like, just, you know, we're, you can be flexible while still kind of expressing that there's a preference. I, can, I think a lot of people would probably share his sentiment in terms of people returning to the office, but... Um, yeah, it's it's pretty bold, isn't it? And for, and for someone that prides himself on being so cool and innovative <laughs> and woke and all the rest of it, I, I, he's kind of like it's he's yeah, it's it's pretty old school for Elon Musk, isn't it? Yeah, especially um, yeah. knowing that there will probably be a backlash after like yeah. this email. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're seeing some really interesting stuff on that. Maybe that's a, a subject for another podcast. Oh, that, we should. But it's it's maybe it's really. Now that the sort of the critical um, sort of phase of the pandemic is over, it's really rising to the surface. You know, everyone's all the vaccine mandate stuff is more or less open. Now it's all about people coming back to work or not coming back to work and the rest of it. And we're seeing lots of that. Again, if you, if, if any employers out there are experiencing issues um, and you want a, a way to approach this that's a little more subtle than Elon Musk <laughs> approach it, then, yeah. <laughs> then you can give us a call and talk to one of us because we, yeah. We, if you copy Elon Musk emails, that's maybe not the best solution. <laughs> <laughs> might yeah. get a special yeah. mention on someone's podcast. It might yeah. happen. You may have a better advice <laughs> for you. <laughs> we do. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the movie. The movie. The Devil's Avocado. <laughs> Devil's Advocate Brown. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we need to explain to the listeners. I love this. It's something I found out when I met Emily that in French, what? How do you say the actual word? Avocat. In French, avocat <laughs> means lawyer and avocado. Yes. So, and that's to, that must be the source of many jokes. It, it? It, is. it is. Yeah. So, <laughs> I can imagine. I'd have some fun with that. Uh, definitely. You know, avocado dressing a lawyer like this. <laughs> <laughs> But you can just so many comparisons, you know, they're overpriced. And... 
they're overpriced. They go bad really quickly. <laughs> yeah, so the devil's advocate. So someone else take the reins with this because, to be honest with you, and I've admitted this to you already, but I want to admit to the listeners, I tried watching this three times and I fell asleep all three times. I can't I believe it. I didn't get. I didn't get to the end. I don't think it's the movie. I, I don't think it's the movie. I think I've been. You, but you're it. missing the best part. Like the hem is I trying. Yeah. Do you know what happens? Part. Yeah, I get the. I get the message. I think like the, he, he. So am I right in saying the movie is basically? I've seen the hotshot lawyer bit, and I think he he moves to New York and then to take this job, and he realizes that the. Boss, spoiler alert! Sorry, the <laughs> boss is actually the devil, right? That's yep. right. <laughs> <laughs> But I still think you need to to watch like the last minute of the. Of yeah, the well, convince me. What's good about it? Why do I have to watch the rest? Oh, like well, there is a pretty long scene in with between Al Pacino and Kenny Reeves. Yeah, and about a little bit of legal ethics being like distinct than traditional ethics and even um, Kenny Reeves work as a lawyer and there is um, like they, they change for a little bit I don't know what you think is here but it's like when they are together in Al Pacino office um Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want to spoil you. Yeah. But um, even like as but you know, this kind of say at some point he's saying to Reeves, well, maybe it was your time to lose for the last case he was doing. And you have a good line where Kenny Reeves would say, lose, I don't lose, I win, I win. I'm a lawyer, that's my job, that's what I do. I'm a winner. And I find it like pretty I noticed that. I was going to raise that because I noticed, like, it starts with him and he's won, like, he's never lost a case or something. 56 yeah. straight wins yeah. or whatever it is. And it's such a funny cliche that you always see in American movies because it's just so unrealistic. Yeah. Like, that's just not yeah. every law case, if it gets there, is arguable to at least some extent and there's one winner and one loser. And it sort of suggests that it's feasible for a lawyer to have, it like, a hot streak, like, like a boxer. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, you know, just you know, the undefeated thing, and it's such such a cliche. Yeah. I that kind of thing. Yeah, and only because you're able to pick the right jury for your case, which is even <laughs> like yeah, great. and pick and pick your cases too. Yeah. If if you if you only you know if you only ran cases that you knew you could win, but even still, all litigation is inherently risky, is what we tell our clients every day. Like, you, you, every case is winnable and losable. And, and so the whole suggestion that someone can have that kind of hot streak is, um, I don't know, I'm with Keanu. Apparently he's a really super good person. No, so, I had I struggled I going can't... into this thinking that he was this yeah. bad guy because all, everything I know about Keanu Reeves is that he's lovely. Al Pacino's yeah. The Devil was brilliant. Like, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Al Pacino is a, is a really, he, he, he's got the capacity to, to make, an ordinary movie 
right. Can I can I drop in with my fun IMDb facts that I found? Yeah, 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 absolutely. (laughs) Because I thought it was really interesting. But apparently Keanu Reeves actually accepted a lower salary so that the producers could pay Al Pacino's asking price. So he took a hit just so that Al Pacino could be in the movie. And then he took another hit because he uh, he spent apparently he spent a lot of time hanging out with defense attorneys in New York City just to prepare for the role. Right. <laughs> wow. But come to think of it, that's good. That's good business from the actor perspective. You know, if but you this can is what I mean. Play, okay, lovely. I'm like... be, but I'm going to be in a movie with Al Pacino. Yeah. Um, will you take yeah. a, a haircut to be in the movie with Al Pacino? Absolutely, you would. You know, I'll do it totally. for free. You know, that, yeah. that might, be, you know, might be the thing that makes my career. So. And look, he does. I, I, the, the parts of it I saw, I think it, he does make it. Like it, even just when he comes into the movie, it, it's, it's a, a game changer. But I also thought um, Charlie's Theron as well. I was a bit surprised. It was, it was sort of, I, I don't know, it was a sort of strange performance from her. Yeah. And like the, her hair, like the, I, I got a bit surprised that this was partly the falling asleep. She had that kind of Ruth Langmore type perm thing in the beginning. They go, oh, she looks weird for Charlie's Theron, and then. Then she, the hair just suddenly changes. Is that a plot point? That Did I you missed? fall asleep? Yeah. Between it's I'm at Pacino asking her to change her hair and like oh, oh that's the bit I missed. Okay, <laughs> Al Pacino asked her to change the hair. Yeah, and she oh, does right. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listens yeah, yeah. to the devil. <laughs> that's hilarious. I can't believe. But, I, but, but when I first saw her, and it's weird. I'm you know you you guys are gonna call me a misogynist, but when I first saw her, I thought, oh, that's an odd look for Charlie's Theron to have that hair. And then obviously the devil didn't like it. Maybe I'm not the beside, I'm I'm the devil, obviously. I feel like, (laughs) no, I feel like it's the opposite. The devil convinced her to get the bad hair too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To ruin her marriage. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm talking about woman in the movie. I'm also far like it's interesting, I think, to see so how many years between the more than like 25 years, I think almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, to see what like the image you have of woman lawyer in the yeah. law firm just yeah, yeah, being yeah. there, like there is only a few of them, yeah. maybe even one yeah, of yeah, them yeah. that we can really see. And obviously yeah. she she look like she seems talented, but she also like really beautiful and like charismatic and and i don't think if the movie was filmed nowadays you would have like the the same you would probably see more women um being like at the partner level yeah Yeah, Um, definitely definitely yeah yeah and and I, i i mean i guess like women have come you know the gender equality in law has improved a lot in 25 years but i don't think it was quite that bad 25 years ago i think more it's more the portrayal of women in law that's probably improved yeah and yeah and another thing you know maybe it's also because it was about like the devil and all these things but even like in general when you think about charlie steron being the woman staying at home and wanting a kid absolutely while her husband is making the money and working long hours, I think it's such like her old school view. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. But um, so what do you reckon then? I'm I'm not gonna I'm gonna decline to rate it because I didn't see the whole thing, and I'll maybe I'll give it a rating. I'll 
now that you guys have convinced me I'm missing out on on something, I'll give it another crack. I'll give it number four. I think you should watch it. <laughs> I think you should go to Zihan. I think Zihan is, well, Zihan is for me the where you kind of like, whoa, okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'll watch it. Mark's out of 10 though, guys. Emily? Eight. I think. Eight? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, was... I, I remember watching the movie as a teenager and being yeah. blown away by the movie. So yeah. I watched it again. So like 20 <laughs> years later, I couldn't really remember it, couldn't remember the hands. Yeah. Um, but I still like think it's it's a good movie when you think it's a 97 movie. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had... I kind of felt like there were a couple scenes, especially when it came to Charlie Theron's character, and I've since read that they took out some, there's some deleted scenes that would have kind of explained her character better, but like why she, I don't, again, spoilers, but she kind of gets convinced that Keanu's like cheating on her and all that stuff. And there's a couple like things that the devil supposedly did to trick her. And I think that would have explained her character a little bit better. Um, but yeah. I definitely loved like Al Pacino's little quotes. What was it? Lawyers are the devil's ministry. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And who could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine, <laughs> which I thought was great. Um, so I think Al Pacino does it for me. I think I, I, I give it a seven. Seven. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that's that's pretty much we've done it for another week. Um, we're next week or in a couple of weeks' time, we are probably going to talk about what I sort of foreshadowed a little while ago in terms of the um, potential impact of the new government on industrial relations, not so much from a legislative perspective, but from a compliance perspective and um, really talk about uh, Fair Work Act compliance and some of the risks of failure to comply and, and, and go through that. Um, but if you're still listening, thank you very much. Um, and thanks, guys, um, Essie and Emily. Um, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks.